Greetings, students. Welcome back for chapter 13 of our podcast lecture series in general psychology. That's Psych 1A. We're going to get started with our mindful moment before we jump into theories of personality. to start our mindful moment by taking a deep cleansing breath and as you exhale during these deep breaths give yourself permission to let go let go of the places that you were before you started this podcast today let go of the places that you're going to be after this podcast today let go of the expectations around you and let this be A moment where you are open to learning, free from everything else. So as you continue your deep breaths, you may feel like placing a hand on your stomach and the other on your heart. As you identify the things that are getting in your way today, getting in the way of you being able to focus, being able to focus on your learning, and give yourself permission to deal with those things later. They'll still be there. Continue taking some deep breaths as you identify and release. And when you're ready, come back into whichever space you find yourself in today as we get ready to talk about theories of personality. Personality is a really fascinating aspect of psychology, but it's important to keep in mind that it is not an exact science. I mean, psychology itself isn't an exact science, but personality especially gets into the realm of this gray area where we have a common language that we use. We have five big factors that we look at in personality, but there's no definitive personality quiz or assessment that you can take that says, this is definitely who you are. These are definitely things about you. So what they do for the most part is get relatively close in general terms, that you are generally more introverted or generally more extroverted. You tend to do this or you tend to like that. And it's also important to note that personality is not the same as the things that you like or the type of people that you like. Those are different traits. That's not your personality. Personality does tend to be pervasive through the lifespan. It doesn't really change all that much. Now, Freud thought that by age six, our personality was fully formed and developed. There's a lot of debate around that because there's a lot of debate around most things in personality psychology. But let's look at Freud's psychodynamic perspective on personality and get a little deeper into it. So the psychodynamic theory of personality states that personality is the unique and relatively stable ways in which you think, feel, and behave. It includes your character and your temperament. Remember we identified temperament way back in chapter eight now as being three different types of temperament, easygoing, difficult, or like slow to warm up. Those were the three options. So that stays relatively the same for our whole life. And then our character, what comprises our character? What is that made up of? And how is that different than personality? Well, let's focus first on the personality piece. 
So character is the value judgments that you make about a person's moral and ethical behavior. Are they right or are they wrong? Is it moral, ethical, acceptable to behave this way or to behave in a different way? That's character. Temperament is the enduring characteristics with which each person is born. That goes back to those three factors from chapter eight. When thinking about Freud, it's easy for us to immediately open that little file in our brain that says, oh yeah, he was that weird guy that had very sexual ideas about people. And he's just kind of a kooky guy, but he has that whole unconscious theory of mind thing. So we keep him around for that. Remember that Freud was living and practicing in an age where psychology was brand new as a science, even as a soft science, uh, where you can't put it under a microscope or run blood tests or any of that type of thing, soft science. He was one of the pioneers, one of the first people to really try and make it a science. So there were not a lot of other people checking in and saying, hey, I don't know about that, or have you considered this? Have you tried it this way? So there were very few men in the field at the time, and he was among the top of those men. This was also in the early 1900s Victorian age, in Austria. So a very different mentality, very different perspective than a psychologist of today, right? So thinking back to that era and to those characteristics of that era, men were supposed to be unable to control their animal desires, referring to their primitive urges. In blatant terms, their sex drive. Men are supposed to want to have sex, and that's just how they are. A good Victorian husband is supposed to father several children with his wife, and then have a mistress on the side for sexual comfort and pleasure, leaving his virtuous wife essentially untouched. So if you were a Victorian-era wife in Austria, your job was to be hyper-religious and essentially kind of like a prude in some ways, where you don't have sexual desires. You're almost an asexual being was the expectation. You give birth to children, but you don't enjoy any aspect of that process from start to finish. Well, as we know, human beings are a little more complicated than that. And as we know, hopefully this is not news to you, women also have sexual urges and desires. Women also find joy and pleasure in sex. And this was like strictly forbidden in Freud's era, Austria. So many of his patients would come to him. They were upper class, affluent or wealthy, white women struggling with having sexual urges that they're not supposed to have. Society and the church say they're not supposed to have them. They're just supposed to have babies, but they're wanting to have sex with people. So these repressed urges, repressed feelings, are coming out as neuroses, neuroticism, um, being really anxious, being really irritable. And this is where some of Freud's theories came from and why some of his theories are so hypersexualized, because sexuality was so stifled in this era. And it's an important and a huge part of human existence is sex. It's not something we talk about all that often. It's something I think we could actually talk about more because it's a very normal human thing. And as we can see in Freudian psychology, the more we repress that, it doesn't always go very well, does it? We come up with some weird ideas and we see that people aren't functioning to their fullest extent. 
So this is where some of Freud's theories and some of Freud's oddity comes from, that he was in this kind of odd place in the history timeline of the church and society dictating one thing and human existence dictating another. And the tension between those two things is where he was getting some of his ideas. And that's where the idea of the subconscious and unconscious mind come from. That when we repress those thoughts, feelings, urges, they don't just go away. You can't ignore them into oblivion. They have to go somewhere. So this is where the preconscious, the conscious, and the unconscious. Remember, the conscious mind is like the top of the iceberg that you can see. The preconscious is also known as the subconscious. Those terms mean the same thing. Preconscious and subconscious are the same. It's that middle layer of the iceberg that you can kind of see if you look for it, but it's not immediately available to your eye. And then the unconscious is the part of the iceberg or the part of the mind that is completely invisible. You can't see it, but it also makes up the bulk of who we are. So Freud believed the unconscious mind was the most important factor in human behavior and personality. So to review, the preconscious mind is information that's available, but not currently conscious. The conscious mind is the level that's aware of immediate surroundings and perceptions. And the unconscious mind is the level in which thoughts, feelings, memories, and other information that are not easily or voluntarily brought into consciousness are kept. So let's get more into Freud's idea of personality because it doesn't just end with consciousness. So there's three parts of the personality consciousness iceberg. There are also three aspects of Freud's theory of personality, the id, the ego, and the superego. Each of these exists at one or more of those levels of consciousness. So parts of our personality are embedded into each part of our consciousness. How the parts develop and interact with each other is the basis of Freud's theory of personality. And each part is in a constant state of conflict with the others. Freud was all about this idea of internal conflict or conflict that we aren't aware of or can't put words to. So each of these parts of our personality is in conflict with each other at all times. And this is why we experience depression, anxiety, any type of experience that could be outside of what we might consider mental wellness. So first up is the id. This is represented by the devil. This is the pleasure principle. It just wants to feel good and have fun, and it doesn't care about the consequences. The id is the part of your brain when you're at a social gathering or a party, and you see someone attractive across the room, and you just make a beeline for them and immediately have some type of interaction with them. You're not thinking about the consequences. You're not thinking about what if your friend saw them first. You're not thinking about, you know, what's this person's last name? Or, you know, what do they do? What what might happen if I have uh, a relationship with this person? And I'm using the term relationship openly. Maybe I have a one-night stand. What happens tomorrow? The it isn't thinking about that. The it is thinking, you're cute. I want to get with you. Let's go. The super ego superego is symbolized as like the angel. It's the moral compass of your personality. It wants to do what's right. It wants to be logical and reasonable. And it's the kind of like your 
internalized voice of your mom. Well, have you thought about this? Did you think about that? Did you pack a snack? Have you thought through all of the parts of this? That's the superego. It's the complete opposite of the id. The id just wants to have fun, doesn't care about consequences, operates off the pleasure principle. The superego cares very much about what is moral, what is ethical, what is right, and it wants to do the right thing. And then the ego is caught in the middle. It is trying to balance out the id and the superego. The ego mostly lives within the conscious mind. It's rational and logical, and it operates on the reality principle. The satisfaction of the demands of the id are only met when there will not be negative consequences. So the ego kind of steps in, weighs out what the id is thinking or what the id wants to do. And if it realizes, okay, there aren't really any negative consequences from following through with this id, go have fun, go operate off the pleasure principle. The id is part of our personality, Freud thought, that was present at birth. So the second we arrive on the planet, the id is already at play. Now, why would Freud think that the id would be present from birth? Is this some weird sexual part of his theory again? No. Remember, the id is not just sexually oriented. It's not just looking for sexual pleasure and fun. That's part of it, but it operates off of immediate rewards without consideration of consequences. What do babies do? They scream and cry and fuss. They're not thinking about your sleep schedule. They're not thinking about whether it's morally right for them to be screaming and crying. All they know is, I'm hungry. I want food. I make noise. I get food. Thus, the id is at work here, that pleasure reward principle. So no, there's nothing sexual about babies operating off of the id principle. We tend to think of that more so in adulthood where the id is really controlled by our libido, our instinctual energy that may come into conflict with demands of a society's standards for behavior. That's where all of Freud's patients, who were these like upper-class white ladies who really wanted to have sex, but the church and society told them they couldn't, they were having some serious libido energy that could not be met or could not be contained. So in our childhood, as we know from our lifespan development section, Kids are pretty egocentric. They just want what they want. They think the whole world revolves around them. They are majorly id-focused. Around middle childhood, we start developing our moral center. Our ego and our superego start kind of knocking on the door like, hey, remember us? We would like to kind of be part of this conversation here. So we see those strengthen throughout time. The ego and the superego strengthen throughout time. So the id, which is present at birth, is completely unconscious. We oftentimes don't consciously make those ideas or those decisions to focus on the pleasure principle. It just kind of happens. So the id resides in our unconscious. The ego, the part that's trying to be the little mediator here, operating off the reality principle, the ego lives in our consciousness. And that brings us back to our superego, the part of our personality that's the moral center. It's uh, the conscious. Like Jiminy Cricket, how he was kind of the conscious in Pinocchio. The conscious being the part of the superego that produces pride or guilt depending on how well behavior matches or does not match the ego ideal. The ego ideal 
is the standards for moral behavior. So have we met the standards for moral behavior? Yes. Great. Feel proud of yourself. If we have not met the standards for moral behavior, ooh, that superego is going to guilt trip you and cause all sorts of emotional responses in you. Freud termed these emotional responses defense mechanisms. When we recognize that there is a disconnect between how we are behaving and how society wants us to behave, we typically don't fess up and change our ways right away. We become defensive. We don't really like being out of sync with the moral standards set by our society. So we do some of the following things to help those negative feelings of guilt and shame go away. We use denial, refusing to recognize or acknowledge the threatening situation. I didn't do that. No, 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 no. You misunderstood what I said or you misunderstood what I was trying to do. That's not what really happened. That's denial. Refusing to acknowledge that something has happened. An example given by your book, Renata refuses to acknowledge her son was killed during his recent military deployment. That stress, the anxiety of that emotional response is too intense. So she unconsciously is having this denial reaction. It can't possibly be true because it's too much to handle. One of Freud's defense mechanisms you've been hearing about all semester, pretty much every time we've talked about Freud, and that's repression. This is pushing threatening or conflicting events or situations out of your conscious memory, shoving it down, bottling it up so that you don't think about it all the time. And this is where sometimes it sneaks out or it comes through like in your dreams or in your behaviors and you're not sure why you did that. It's because that's been living in your unconscious. You repressed it down into your unconscious so you're not thinking about it constantly, but it's still there. It's still part of you. So here's an example of repression. Reagan, who was sexually abused as a child, cannot remember the abuse at all. And this is very common with childhood abuse victims that they don't remember it. Because especially as a child, that information is too threatening. It's too scary to know that, to think about that. So your brain, as a defense strategy, as a survival mechanism, represses that information down into your unconscious so it can't bother you anymore. Sometimes these memories come back later. Sometimes they don't. Either way, it's actually okay. Next up is rationalization. We talked about this with social psychology and how we rationalize the ideas and thoughts we have when we're part of a particular group and we validate those thoughts and feelings with each other. Rationalization is making up acceptable excuses for unacceptable behavior. Well, it's okay because everybody else is doing it. I'm in this group of people that I trust and they're all doing this, thus it makes sense for me to do it too. Projection is one where we place our own thoughts onto other people as if those thoughts belong to them and not to yourself. A classic example is if you've ever had a parent, especially a mom, who has said something like, put on a jacket, I'm cold. And you're like, what does you being cold have anything to do with me needing to put on a jacket? Well, that in that situation, mom is projecting their physical sensation of coldness onto you and assuming that it's your coldness, so you need to put on a jacket. Another example from your book, Maria is attracted to her sister's husband, but denies this and believes that the husband is attracted to her. No, it's not me. It's them. They think this. You're projecting 
your thoughts and ideas onto someone else and giving them the responsibility for those ideas and thoughts. Next is reaction formation. This is forming an emotional reaction or an attitude that is the opposite of one's threatening or unacceptable actual thoughts. So let's untangle that a little bit with an example. Kyle is unconsciously attracted to Sian, but outwardly voices an extreme hatred of homosexual people. So whenever you ask a little kid like, oh, do you have a crush on Susie? And they're like, no, I hate Susie. She's the worst. That's an example of reaction formation, basically doing a 180 from your actual feelings because they're a little too scary. It's a little too scary to actually like Susie. So I'm going to say that I totally dislike her. I hate her. That's reaction formation. Displacement is a defense mechanism where we express feelings that would be threatening if directed at the real target onto a less threatening substitute target. This is bullying. So here's an example. Sandra gets reprimanded by her boss. She goes home and picks a fight with her husband. It's too scary. It's too intimidating to actually take it up with her boss to let her boss know her actual feelings. So she finds someone with less power who's less intimidating and takes her feelings out on them. Oftentimes bullies, I'm going to use childhood as an example, things aren't great at home. A child can't stand up to their parent. Their parent has too much power over them. It's too threatening. It's too scary for that child to go against their parent. So they take it out on someone at school, someone who's smaller than them, kind of an easy target. That's displacement. You take out your feelings on a less threatening target. In regression, we fall back on childlike patterns as a way of coping with stressful situations. So there may be times where we're feeling really stressed out, so we do something kind of childlike in response. Maybe we have like a temper tantrum, or we use kind of a childish tone of voice. We see this a lot with kids and teenagers, but it's true with adults as well. Um, it's a little bit sneakier with adults because we make an assumption that we're willfully making that decision to act in a childlike way. And if we get called out on it, we just play it off as something humorous. But with children and teenagers especially, you may see a nine-year-old who has a stressful situation, maybe parents are getting divorced, and they start sucking their thumb again, or they start wetting the bed again. They're regressing, going back to an earlier, more childlike type of behavior than they typically would behave as. So normally nine-year-olds don't suck their thumbs, they don't wet the bed, but under extreme stress, we tend to go backwards a little bit, have some of those earlier behaviors. Regression. In identification, we try to become like someone else in order to deal with our own anxiety. So an example of this, Samantha really admires Emily, who's the most popular girl in school, so Samantha tries to copy her behavior and her dress. Identification. It's a little too hard to be me, so I'm going to be somebody else. With compensation, we're trying to make up for areas in which we have a lack or a deficit um, by becoming superior in some other area. So I'm not very good at math, so I'm going to be a superstar in my writing class instead. Another example from your book, Ethan is not good at athletics, so he puts all of his energy into becoming an academic scholar. I'm not good at one thing. I don't really want people to pick up on that. I feel embarrassed by it. So I hyper-focus and really excel at something else. 
I'm compensating for this deficit by doing something else. And finally, sublimation. This is turning socially unacceptable urges into socially acceptable behavior. The example from your book, Ryder, who is very aggressive, becomes a mixed martial arts fighter. So finding healthy outlets for some of our maybe socially unacceptable or less acceptable behaviors. So remembering that in Freudian psychology theory, psychodynamic personality theory, uh, Freud believed that our personality was completely fully mature and formed by the age of six. With this in mind, regardless of what we might personally feel about that theory, but with that in mind, that first six years being so important, it's thus important for us to look at Freud's theory of development. Freud's theory of development is called psychosexual development. And there are five stages of personality development that were proposed by Freud and tied to the sexual development of the child. Remember the framework that Freud was coming from and why he had some pretty good reason, actually, to have such hypersexualized ideas. We don't keep all of these ideas, but there are little elements of truth in each of these stages. So have an open mind as we approach these. One of the important facets of psychosexual development is fixation. If a person does not fully resolve the conflict in a particular psychosexual stage, it will result in personality traits and behaviors associated with that earlier stage. So you have to get through each stage fully and completely in order to fully advance to the next stage. If you do not, or if there are issues with that, there is evidence of it in the next stage. So let's get into it and it'll start to make a little more sense. The first stage in the psychosexual personality development theory is the oral stage. This is the first 18 months of life in which the mouth is the erogenous zone and weaning is the primary conflict. What does that mean? Anytime we talk about an erogenous zone, we're talking about an area of the body that experiences pleasure. So in the first 18 months of life, the mouth is where we experience the most sensation of pleasure. Not sexual pleasure, just enjoyment and a feeling of satisfaction. This makes sense when you think about 18-month-olds. What do they do? They put everything in their mouth. A bottle, your earring, your cell phone, whatever it may be, it goes in their mouth. So even though it might sound strange at first... There's actually some truth to this. There's actually a good reason why Freud would think this. And as we discussed previously, the id is the dominant aspect of the personality. We're doing whatever we want. We don't care about consequences. We just want to feel good. No 18-month-old is thinking about why putting an outlet for a computer charger, putting the end of that in their mouth, they're not thinking about why that's a bad idea. They're just doing it because they think it's going to feel good. That is being id-dominated, with the mouth being the primary erogenous zone. The first 18 months of life, the oral stage. Assuming all goes well during the oral stage, we then advance to the anal stage, the second stage. This occurs between 18 and 36 months of age, and the anus is the erogenous zone. So the anus is the region in which we are experiencing the most sensation of pleasure and reward. 
Again, not in a sexual sense. The reason why approximately two years of age is considered the anal stage in psychosexual development is because that's when we're learning potty training. We're learning how to control that region of our body. And especially in Freudian psychology, being able to control your excretory system, being able to have a sense of relieving when you want to or on command, if you will, is a major hallmark in growth and development. And if things don't go quite right in this um, particular phase of our development, there can be significant behavioral consequences later in life. You may have heard the term anal retentive to describe somebody who is very uptight and needs to have things very precise and very organized. They need to know exactly what is happening when. Sometimes the term anal retentive is used to describe them. It is linked to this theory that in childhood, during the anal stage, if we are shamed for not being correctly potty trained, let's say we have an accident and we are given a significant amount of shame and guilt during this time, then we don't learn proper control of our bowels and we seek control elsewhere in our life in order to make up for that and avoid those feelings of shame and guilt. This is where we see the development of the ego in Freudian personality psychology. So the development of that rational, logical, reality-based part of us that wants to have a balance between the pleasure principle and the morality principle, the id and the superego. Remember, the ego is the one that's trying to kind of be that person in the middle that says, well, if I do this at this time, will there be a consequence? Yes or no. So if I go poop right now, will there be a consequence? Yes or no. This is where we're seeing the development of this part of our personality. In the third stage, this is called the phallic stage in psychosexual development. The phallic stage, the third stage occurs from about three years old to six years old. And this is when a child discovers that they have genitals and sexual feelings. So it's a very normal part of development for kids to very suddenly one day realize what's in their pants and to be very excited about it and to want to show other people and see what they have in their pants to see if it's the same or different. It can be a little uncomfortable as an adult knowing that we have societal expectations and societal rules about not showing people what's in our pants. But for a three to six year old who's discovering it for the first time, it's truly very innocent for the most part. They're really just exploring their body for the first time. And it's just kind of an interesting, exciting thing. So this is where the superego starts to develop, that morality principle of if I do this, I get in trouble. I experience shame and guilt. So moving forward with our psychosexual development theory, stage four is the latency stage. This is the one, it's really during the elementary school years. And Freud kind of theorized that Nothing was really happening in terms of sexual feelings or sexual exploration and growth. Not a whole lot happens. Uh, Freud was just kind of like, I don't really know. Kids are just going to school. And they're just kind of doing their thing. Not a whole lot of sexual activity seems to be happening. So this is the latency stage. It really just signifies that not a whole lot's happening. The sexual feelings of the child are repressed while the child develops in other ways. 
And that leads us to the genital stage. This is during and after puberty, where very much opposite from the latency stage, sexual feelings reawaken with appropriate targets. Again, because Freud was practicing his and developing his theory in Victorian age Austria, this would be young men feeling attracted towards young women, young women feeling attracted towards young men. And that's really where Freud's theory ends. Once we hit puberty and have sexual feelings towards appropriate targets, we just continue doing that for the rest of our life and nothing else really happens. Uh, so Freud's theory in some ways is criticized because it focuses purely on sexual development as the foundation of our personality and who we are. And we know that people are more complex than that. So there are some other people who were students of Freud who built on his idea um, included aspects of sex, which is part of the human experience, but also elaborated a bit more to say that we don't stop developing at age 12. So neo-Freudians, as they're referred to, are followers of Freud who developed their own competing theories of psychoanalysis. They kept some of Freud's concepts, but they moved away from psychoanalysis to impact of the social environment. So trying to expand their theories, have a broader perspective. Some big names you may recognize from our Lifespan chapter, Carl Jung, Alfred Adler, Karen Horne, and Eric Erickson. So Carl Jung is a big name, especially in personality theory. We'll get to him a little bit later on, but just a little bit on him now. Carl Jung developed a theory including both a personal and collective unconscious. So we all have our own three levels of consciousness, but we also have this sense, according to Carl Jung, of a collective consciousness. Things that we all feel, experience, and seem to know together as a unit. So the personal unconscious in Jung's theory is essentially the same thing as the unconscious mind that Freud gave words to. And then the collective unconscious, the memories shared by all members of the human species. The other major hallmark of Carl Jung's theory is archetypes. These are collective, universal human memories. We'll look at four major Jungian archetypes in this course. There are 12 overall, and that list is expanding as students of Jung continue to develop his theory and expand on it. But these are the four primary archetypes. The first is the anima or the animus. The anima is the feminine aspect of a man's unconscious, while the animus is the male aspect of the female unconscious. So we each have a bit of the opposite gender, opposite gender roles. We each have a bit of that within us. So that's the anima or the animus within us. Integrated human beings are made up of a balance between feminine and masculine energies. Something that you'll see a lot in Jungian psychology is a seek uh, searching for balance. We don't want to be all one thing and have nothing else. We need to have a little bit of both or a little bit of multiple things in order to be balanced and to not have these neurotic or anxious behaviors. So a balance between feminine and masculine energies. That's the anima or the animus. The second is the shadow. This is the personal qualities we deny, repress, or ignore. Remember, they don't go away. They're relegated to the unconscious. 
This is often described as the darker side of the psyche. It represents a sense of wildness, chaos, and the unknown. Especially in the era, again, in which Freud and Jung would have been developing these theories, having a lack of control, being wild, having a primitive sense of self was highly undesirable. Society in the church said that that was not acceptable. So it was turned off. It was completely ignored and would then come out through oftentimes sexual behaviors, sexual urges and desires, which is where Freud built his theory from. Carl Jung saw something similar, but coming out in different ways. A desire to kind of just act out or be rebellious, uh, go against the crowd. Those are things that live within our shadow. And again, we need to have balance. So we need to acknowledge the shadow, let it have a little bit of room to be expressed, a little bit of wiggle room. Don't repress it completely. That's when we lose control and the shadow takes over. So the shadow is the personal qualities we deny, repress, or ignore and get kicked into our unconscious. The third major Jungian archetype is the persona. This is how we present ourselves to the world. And it's conceptualized in terms of having masks. We have many different masks that we wear at different times. Sometimes you wear the student mask. Sometimes you wear the son or daughter mask, like if you're with your parents and you behave a certain way. You wear a different mask when you're with your friends, a different mask at work, a different mask for different hobbies or other things that you do and enjoy. We have a tendency to want to put all of our energy into one or into just a couple of them. And Carl Jung reminds us that we need balance. Not, he warns us not to identify too closely with just one mask. We're not only one thing. People are much more complex than that. So having balance between our different masks leads to having a healthy persona, a healthy way that we represent ourselves in the world. The final major Jungian archetype is the self. This is achieved through successful integration of those other three archetypes. So we can't just be one thing. We can't just focus on one thing. We need to have an integrated, balanced sense of self in order to achieve this kind of self-actualized in some ways. I'm getting a little into humanistic theory there. But to have a full sense of self means letting the other aspects of us have balance and integrating all the different parts of us. The self is achieved through successful integration, and it's often represented by a wise person. So you see this in movies and in books and different types of media. There's like a, a wise old wizard or a wise sage of some sort, and they have a balance. They represent a balance. They represent order, but also understanding of chaos and kind of being cool with chaos sometimes. Um, sometimes the wizards like Albus Dumbledore or... Um, Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, they represented a lot of wisdom through experience, through letting some chaos have place in their lives, but learning from those experiences. They integrated the kind of wise mind, the knowing, and the experience of having these wild adventures and these different masks that they wear. Integrated those all together, achieving a full sense of self in Jungian psychology. Let's look at a quick overview of some other neo-Freudians, students of Freud who kept some of his concepts, but also expanded on and developed other aspects of his theory. Alfred Adler 
He proposed that the feelings of inferiority are the driving force behind personality. So if we perceive that we are inferior inferior to someone else, that's what really motivates us. That's what transforms us into who we are. He developed birth order theory. The oldest child typically does this. The middle child typically does that. And the youngest child typically does this. That was all Alfred Adler. So he theorized that firstborn children feel inferior to younger children who receive attention. So they become overachievers. So any of you who might have younger siblings, when your super cute younger sibling came along, all of a sudden you had to fight for more attention. So you became an overachiever to try and compensate and get some of that attention back. Middle children feel superior to the dethroned older child as well as younger children. So they tend to be very competitive. They're trying to keep that seat of superiority. And younger children feel inferior because they don't have the freedom or responsibility of older children. Not only do younger children watch their older siblings get to do things they aren't allowed to do, oftentimes by the time that child reaches the age of the older sibling, there's new rules and regulations in place because parents are a little bit wiser now that they've had a couple of children. Another neo-Freudian, Karen Horney, she's also the only female in this list, she developed a theory based on basic anxiety, and she rejected the concept of penis envy. Oh yeah, that was a theory of Freud's, by the way, that all women experience penis envy, and we are so jealous of men because they have penises and we don't. For the record, that is not true, so she was the first one to really publicly reject that idea. Of note, she's also the only woman on this list, so it makes sense that she would be the first person to openly reject that idea. So her concept was basic anxiety. This was anxiety created when a child is born into a bigger and more powerful world of older children and adults. To be this small person in a world of people that are all bigger than you, of concepts that you don't understand, can be overwhelming. So you have a sense of anxiety about this. You don't understand how the world works. It seems like you're the smallest fish in the pond. You feel anxious. Basic anxiety. From this basic anxiety, we can develop neurotic personalities. These are the results of less secure upbringings. And when paired with maladaptive ways of dealing with relationships, it leads to having more significant anxiety and maybe some other behaviors and characteristics that are difficult. Irritability, constant worrying, constant attention seeking. These are neurotic personality traits. So those are the results of less secure upbringings and are paired with maladaptive ways of dealing with relationships. Our final neo-Freudian of the bunch is Eric Erickson. He has a very well-accepted theory of child development that we covered in our lifespan chapter. His theory was based on social interactions rather than sexual relationships, and it covered the entire lifespan. Freud's ended at age 12. Eric Erickson's goes all the way until death. So you'll remember that his eight stages took us all the way through puberty and adulthood. And it wasn't just, oh, yeah, there's puberty and then there's adulthood and you die. There was puberty, there was middle adulthood, older adulthood, and then death. So he had a more comprehensive scope of the lifespan than Freud does. So 
So why do we keep studying Freud and psychodynamic perspectives if there's a lot of outdated qualities to it? Well, current research has found support for defense mechanisms. These are still very relevant and honestly pretty accurate. There's also a lot of support for the concept of the unconscious mind that can influence conscious behavior. This is the most significant of Freud's contributions to psychology, and that alone gives us good reason to look at his work and to really examine it with a critical eye. So there are other Freudian concepts that we can't really research scientifically, but are still relevant and seem to be supported through what we've observed and what we understand of the human experience such as the interpretation of dreams and free association, there's not really a way to scientifically examine dreams. We don't know enough about it, even from a biological basis. So trying to interpret dreams is not a science at all. It is completely an art form. And at that, it's highly debated. And free association, this is where um, someone says a word and you say the first thing that comes to mind. That's a way of revealing the unconscious and the subconscious. Um, and again, it's something we can't really scientifically examine, but it seems to be pretty valid and holds some weight on its own. We're going to move away from psychoanalysis, the neo-Freudians, and Freud himself completely, and look now at learning theories. So this is based in behavioral psychology and social cognition. Under this umbrella, personality is a set of learned responses or habits. It's not these ingrained things or uh, things that we've developed through our sexual development. Personality is what we learn. These are learned responses or habits that we build. Social cognitive learning theorists emphasize the influences of other people's behavior and a person's own expectations on learning. So the way other people behave around us and the expectations we have about that are leading into what we learn and the personality traits we develop from that learning. This is the work of Bandura, who you might remember from the Bobo the Clown experiment, and Rotter. They were both social cognitive theorists. The social cognitive view of personality, it's a learning theory that includes the social cognitive processes, such as anticipating, judging, memory, and imitation of models. So you can see where Bandura is coming back in here with the imitation of models and vicarious conditioning. Bandura's reciprocal determinism theory is an explanation of how the factors of the environment, personal characteristics, and behavior can interact to determine future behavior. So the place that we're in, the characteristics that we have, and behaviors that are present in that environment can determine future behavior. And he had a theory of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is an, is an individual's perception of how effective a behavior will be in any particular circumstance. So this is not the same as self-esteem. Self-esteem is believing in yourself, having the confidence to get something done. Self-efficacy is your perception of how effective your behavior will be in that situation. If I do this, what will the outcome be? Not, if I have enough confidence, then I can pull off this behavior. The other big name when we're talking about learning theories as it pertains to personality is Rotter. 
So Rotter's, Rotter's social learning theory is based on the principle of motivation. So bring back that information that we learned in chapter nine on motivation and emotions. Have that in your head as we're thinking about Rotter and what he says. So he thought that people want to seek reinforcement and avoid punishment. This makes a lot of sense based on what we know about motivation and how the human brain learns. We've even seen this in animals and primates, that we want to have a reward and not get in trouble or not experience something negative or unpleasurable. So that makes sense. Rotter also thought that the locus of control or the center of control could be either internal or external. So as again, we talked about with motivation and emotions, that chapter, that if we have an internal locus of control, we believe that we're in control of things, we behave in a certain way. If we believe that there is an external locus of control, something else or someone else is in control of my life, my behaviors, my functioning, that then also determines how we behave. Rotter also had this idea of expectancy, a person's subjective feeling that a particular behavior will lead to a reinforcing consequence. So remember, something that is subjective is subjected to your own interpretation. Something that is objective is more neutral. So subjective things are very imbued in our bias. Uh, So our subjective feeling that a particular behavior will lead to a reinforcing consequence. I think that if I get all of my lectures done on time, I will have less stress about how the semester is going to go. That's a subjective feeling. Some people might feel that doing their lectures the day before that they are meant to be given is a better way of preparing. The information is fresh and it's updated with this current class and what they seem interested in or what their understanding of psychology is. So different beliefs around what we're feeling. A different subjective feeling that a particular behavior leads to a reinforcing consequence. This is also where we can get into self-fulfilling prophecy. So self-fulfilling prophecy is where something happens because you thought it was going to happen. So if you believe that Donald Trump is going to have a second term of his presidency, so you don't go vote because you feel like it's already settled, what if millions of people feel that way? Well, then the voting is going to be very skewed, and that's what's going to actually happen. Or to make it a little more personal, you know, you're going on a first date and you're really panicking about what to say or what to wear and you're so nervous and you're just so nervous that you're going to mess it up that you end up messing it up because you were so nervous. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It played out the way you thought it would because you thought it was going to be that way. Whereas if we could step back and say, you know, I really don't care for the current president, so I'm going to go vote. And maybe it doesn't make a huge difference. Maybe we still have another term of the same president, but at least I did something about it. Or on that first date, you know, I'm feeling really nervous. I'm not sure what to wear. I'm worried I'm going to ruin it. But I also know that it's normal to be nervous on a first date, and I actually have a lot to offer. So I'm going to focus on that instead. Can turn the tide and make that self-fulfilling prophecy something positive instead of negative. So some current thoughts on the behavioral and social cognitive learning views. B. 
Behaviorism as an explanation of personality formation has limitations. It does not take mental processes into account. This is one of the things that people tend to criticize with behaviorism, is that it boils everything down to A plus B equals C. And the human brain is much more complicated than that, as has been made very clear this semester, I'm sure, that the human experience and human functioning is so much more than just things lining up together to have an outcome. So behaviorism behaviorism doesn't really take that into account. And it doesn't give weight to social influences on learning. And as we learned in chapter 12, that social influences are massively important. It's not something we can just write off. And you know that old saying that people always throw out there when you're making a decision they don't like? Well, if everyone was jumping off a cliff, would you go jump off a cliff too? Maybe if they had parachutes and we were all supposed to go uh, skydiving that day. You know, it's that old argument that comes into play, but our social influences are incredibly important and they do sway us without us even realizing it. So this is a big issue with behavioral and social cognition that they're not taking into account our higher level of functioning, our mental processes, and it's not taking into account how we are swayed unconsciously by social influences. But the social cognitive view does include social and mental processes. So that was more so a criticism of behaviorism. Doesn't take mental processing or social influence into account. Social cognition does a better job of that. It still has some limitations in this area, uh, but it does a much better job of taking those things into consideration and testing them under scientific conditions. All right, our final theory category for this episode will be humanistic theories. Humanistic theories focus on aspects of personality that make people uniquely human, such as subjective feelings and the freedom of choice. So this is where we get a bit philosophical also, um, because some people don't agree with the idea that we have freedom of choice or that feelings are subjective. Some people have this idea that there's more of like a Uh, kind of a certain way the universe works. So keep that in mind as we're going through this and maybe consider what your own views on that are as we cover this material. So we can't talk about humanistic psychology and humanistic theory of personality without talking about Carl Rogers. His idea was that the humanistic perspective was like this third force in psychology He developed it as a reaction against the negativity of psychoanalysis and the deterministic nature of behaviorism. So we kind of had Freud, Bandura, and Carl Rogers, which are three very different ways of looking at human functioning, human existence. Uh, So we all know that Sigmund Freud had a very kind of deep perspective and a very sexualized perspective of the human experience, which is good and bad. And that uh, our behaviorists had a very deterministic, uh, meaning a very set way of things playing out. As I said earlier, A plus B equals C. If I do this, then this happens. Behaviorism is very black and white in that way. It's very rigid um, in its thinking. So this humanistic perspective comes in as this third force offering a different perspective, um, offering more choice. Um, giving humans a little more agency in their existence. 
And the big names in our humanistic perspective are Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. So Carl Rogers um, believed in the self-actualizing tendency, the striving to fulfill our innate capacities and capabilities, this idea that each person has an individual pinnacle of existence, kind of that peak um, or that best moment, the optimum existence. And we can all get there. We get there in different ways, and everyone has a different kind of self-actualized experience or has a different uh, form of self-actualization. What my self-actualization looks like would be different from yours. And this sounds really awesome, right? That we can achieve like the ultimate of our own individual experience. For those of us who grew up in Western American culture, where it's a very individualistically focused, this sounds like winning all of the Olympic medals and the Grammys and just everything all at once. But what's really important to note, because people get really stuck on this sometimes, of how do I become fully actualized, thinking that it's kind of a one-time thing. Like once you achieve it, then you're good. Like you've done it forever. And that's not true. Carl Rogers really wanted to emphasize and have people understand that we get to that point maybe a couple of times in our life. It's something that's short-lived and it's super cool when it happens, but we also need to accept the other parts of our life. It's okay to not be self-actualized. It's okay to have these maybe suboptimal experiences. It's probably a majority of what human life is. So that's where the idea of self-agency and having control in our life also comes back in. That you can get to that mountaintop, but know that you're going to come down at some point and it's going to be okay. So self-actualizing, striving to fulfill your innate capacities and capabilities, achieving your best, most optimal self. Self-concept is the image of yourself that develops from interactions with important and significant people in your life. This could be your parents, your caregivers, your siblings, a really influential teacher or coach, anyone along the way in your life that's really important to you. The way that they see you and the way that they interact with you shapes the way you see yourself. So if other people are kind and loving towards you, they tell you how smart you are, how talented and gifted, and they highlight all of the beautiful things that you have to offer, That's how you start to see yourself, as a beautiful person with unique and wonderful things to offer. If other people in your life are telling you that you're not enough, that you're a bad person, or that you're never going to achieve the things you want to do, that you should settle for less, that's what you start to believe about yourself, that you're not good enough, that you're not going to self-actualize, you're not going to have these experiences or achievements that you wish for. And this leads into the self-archetype that works with the ego to manage other archetypes and balance the personality. So this plays back into Carl Jung's theory a bit. We have two Carls here, Carl Rogers and Carl Jung. So this leads back into Carl Jung's theory about archetypes. Remember, those are the different kind of facets of ourself. And he was all about balance. You can't let one archetype take over. Um, That's when we start to see um, disease and mental illness is when one archetype is at the wheel and the other ones don't have any expression whatsoever. So the self-archetype works with the ego to manage the other archetypes and bring balance to the personality. 
This is, again, highlighting just how complex human beings are. We're not just one thing. We're not all good or all bad. We are a mix of many, many things, and different aspects of ourselves are manifest or are more apparent at some times than others. So the real self is one's perception of actual characteristics, traits, and abilities, who you really are. And then there's the ideal self. This is your perception of who you want to be or who you would like to be. Maybe right now you're a student aspiring to become a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, whatever other occupation you may have in mind. Or maybe you're a student who just wants to get these credits done. And that ideal self is someone who has their credits done. That's okay, too. And just for the record, I know I mentioned a bunch of those kind of white-collar jobs just now, nurses, doctors, lawyers. You can also aspire to be a grocery worker or an entrepreneur, small business owner, a highline worker with PG&E, any of these things. Whatever it is that you would like to be or who you would like to become, that is your ideal self. And there's no right or wrong way that that can look. Unless your ideal self is like a homicidal maniac. Let's not look for that. Uh, But your ideal self is unique to who you are, to what you want to achieve. The problem with having a real self and an ideal self is that they don't always line up. Um, I used occupation and education as an example. Being a student now aspiring to some type of occupational achievement Um, But sometimes it can be a little more personal, like maybe you want to be a kinder person or you want to be a more giving person. And that can be at odds with your real self who is super broke because you're in school during a pandemic. Um, So those things can be in tension with each other. And when we experience that tension between this is who I am, but this is who I want to be and I feel like I can't get there, we experience anxiety or we experience depression. Um, This incongruence or this mismatching leads to what can be an intense emotional experience for us when we feel like who we are and who we want to be are incompatible. So according to Rogers, the self-concept includes the real self and the ideal self. The real self is our actual perception of our traits and abilities here and now today. Whereas the ideal self is the perception of who we would like to be or think we should be. That word should comes up a lot in humanistic psychology. Um, That there's all these shoulds. You should do this. You should be this. And oftentimes those things don't fit with who we are or they don't line up with what our life is. So ideal self, what we would like to be or what we think we should be. So when the ideal self and the real self are very similar, or when they match up really well, we experience harmony and contentment. How lovely. But when there's a mismatch between those, we experience anxiety and may engage in what's called neurotic behavior. Um, So neurotic behavior, that's a phrase that has a lot of baggage with it. Like no one wants to be called neurotic. That's not a good thing. But what it really means is having like anxious behaviors of maybe worrying a lot or constantly feeling like you're not good enough. Um, Maybe you even have some like physical manifestations of this, like tapping a lot or being really fidgety. Those can be described as neurotic behaviors. They're not nearly as intense or nasty as they sound. That label neurotic is not a very good one. 
One of the hallmarks of the humanistic perspective that is very much missing from psychoanalytic and behavior perspectives is positive regard. Sigmund Freud was not known for being a warm, loving, kind guy. He was known for being really cold, actually, um, and kind of giving his patients the cold shoulder. He was really just all about business. Um, and behaviorism is the same way. Like, we're just here to learn things and get stuff done. So humanistic perspective um, really values positive regard. It's warmth, affection, love, and respect that come from significant others in one's life. And the biggest part of this is unconditional positive regard. This is what humanistic psychology really values. It's positive regard that's given without strings attached. So you are a human being, and therefore you are worthy of my warmth, my affection, and my love. To varying degrees, of course. Um, just in the way that, you know, an acquaintance on the street is going to be loved and given affection in a very different way than your intimate romantic partner, right? Um, but regardless of how you know them, they are a human being. Therefore, they are worthy and deserving of your warmth. Uh, whereas conditional positive regard is that warmth and love and affection, but there's strings attached. There are conditions that have to be met in order for that to be given. Uh, so a kind of classic example of this is uh, maybe some really strict parents who kind of withhold their affection unless their child attains a certain achievement. If you get a B on a test, you know, then my love goes away. Um, this can be true with intimate partnerships as well. You know, you didn't get that raise or you didn't even go for that promotion. So I'm going to withhold my affection uh, because I'm mad at you or because I feel now that you don't deserve it. So unconditional positive regard. I give it freely because you're a human being and you deserve it. Conditional positive regard. I withhold it at certain times because there are strings attached to whatever our relationship is. In humanistic psychology, we talk about self-actualization and we also talk about the fully functioning person. These are two separate concepts that sound very similar. So self-actualization, remember, is getting to that like ultimate experience of your life. Whereas being a fully functioning person is a person who is in touch with and trusting of the deepest innermost urges and feelings. So let's back up a second. Remember in psychoanalytic theory, Freud and all that stuff, that innermost urges and feelings can be really threatening and scary. So we push them down. We repress them. We shove them into our unconscious because we don't want to deal with them. So humanistic psychology says, yep, we agree with that. And we think a fully functioning person is someone who can accept those parts of themselves, where you don't have to shove it into the unconscious because you don't want to deal with it. A fully functioning person is someone who can recognize those deepest, ugliest parts of their life and go, yeah, that happened. And it wasn't great. Or I'm not proud of that. But it's part of me. It's part of the narrative that is my life. And the only thing I can really do with it is go forward, accept it and move forward. So self-actualization is the optimum peak experience, whereas a fully functioning person is someone who is in touch with their innermost feelings, thoughts, and urges. So they're very similar concepts. So be sure that we're keeping those separate. Um, as we're talking about humanistic psychology, it's easy to get them mixed up. So what are some of the current thoughts on the humanistic view of personality? It paints this really rosy picture. 
that you have control over your life. You can have this mountaintop experience. You can be fully in touch with your feelings, thoughts, and urges. Doesn't that sound amazing to just accept who we are and move on with life? How often does that actually happen? How easy is it to actually have those things happen? It's not. So humanistic psychology, in the view of personality, it gets a little bit of criticism for being a little too sunshine and rainbows, a little too rosy. And it's very difficult to test this scientifically. And this is true with many aspects of personality. Trying to bring science back into it to have an objective validity to it is very difficult. And it's particularly difficult with the humanistic view. And its connection to positive psychology, um, which again has this criticism of being a little too rosy and a little too uh, kind of selling a product that isn't real. Um, in some ways, there are aspects of this that are valid and I think are really great, um, but it makes it seem like it's really easy and you just buy this 12-step book and you read it and all of a sudden your life's amazing. And that's not true. Um, even with these really positive, really human affirming theories, there's hard work that has to be done in order to achieve these things. And it's not easy to do. It takes a long time. And there are some things that are just really hard to reconcile that we've been through in life. So that is where humanistic psychology, especially in its view of personality, loses a bit of traction with some of the more scientific psychological community. All right, students, that brings us halfway through chapter 13 on personality. We're getting a lot of background information on these different theories. And next time we'll be able to get a little deeper into uh, the different assessments and personality quizzes that you are probably familiar with and understanding what they're really telling you. So see you next time.